HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. Okay, once again, you have tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are on the line with Janice Ray um, to talk about her most recent book, The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Erin. Um, I'm, so I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm so glad to have you. I think we have tons of material to cover. So I want to jump right in. I know that you are quite an acclaimed author and, and poet, and I'm just curious, like, how was it that you came to write this book about seeds? Thank you so much for calling me acclaimed. I I have two great passions in my life, and one is writing, and one is a love of nature and concern for the environment. So most of my adult life, I've been uh, a nature writer, uh, writing about uh, the lost ecosystem of the South, Longleaf Pine, rural community. But uh, what happened is that during all that time, I was also a gardener, and I became really interested in in the sustainable ag movement. Uh, Ten or twenty years ago, I've been a seed saver for twenty-five or thirty years, and just after a while. I, I, you know, I would turn on the radio and hear a lot of hopeless kind of news, more drought, more wildfires. And as I traveled about speaking at universities, talking to young people, I saw that, you know, the, the, there was one subject that was lighting fires in people's minds and in their eyes, and it was often food and our relationship to food. And so... I, I just I thought, you know, what better contribution could I make to this movement than this? Uh, Aaron, I think we un- we're at a place in this country where we understand organic, that food grown without chemicals is healthier for us. And we understand local, that food grown closer to home is more nutritious and that it also uh, is uh, easier on the atmosphere. 
But I think it's time that we understand our seed supply, the crux of food, that our seed supply is in jeopardy, and what we all might be able to do about that. But for a short answer, hope is the reason I, I wrote the book. I like it. I like both the short and the long. And you're, we're speaking to you, you're down in uh, southern Georgia, correct? We live on a small, diversified farm in southern Georgia, about an hour inland from Savannah, a great food hub, by the way. Our farm is called Red Earth Farm, and we, uh, we grow as much of our own food as we can. We are a, a four-person family with one child away at college. Um, beyond what we grow for ourselves, we uh, have been selling at the Statesboro Farmer's Market. It's a local farmer's market. Um, let's see, we not only grow vegetables, and we have an up-and-coming orchard. We don't get very much out of it yet, but we have lots of animals, cows, hogs, pigs, goats, chickens, guineas, turkeys, and small numbers of each, you know, maybe 100 chickens. We have, I think, oh, three hogs right now, 20 cows. My husband milks. We eat our own grass-fed meat, so we're trying to we're trying to create a food system down here. And you know, no matter what's coming at us, peak soil, peak oil, um, economic uh, economic turmoil, we hope to be able to feed ourselves, our friends, and our community. Wow, that sounds, you paint a very idyllic picture. Well, let's tuck into to this discussion about seeds. Uh, I think it's probably helpful to start with, with kind of a general definition of, of what is it that we're talking about with seeds. I mean, to, to my knowledge, you know, you can look at seed catalogs to buy seeds to uh, plant in your garden, but then you go to the grocery store and there's poppy seeds and, and sesame seeds, or you eat some beans and are those seeds and so what, like, what exactly, how do we define a seed and, and what are some of the categories that, that we'd be thinking or talking about? That's a great question. You know, as I was writing the book, I realized that we don't do much thinking about seeds. We don't realize how important a part of our lives they are. And you're right, you know, we eat a poppy seed muffin and, muffin and we don't think, wow, those are actually seeds in that muffin that would have been growing more poppy plants. Or we eat a pot of beans, a, a, a taco, and we don't think that every one of those beans would have been the start of another bean plant. That corn, it, the corn we grind up and make into tortillas or grits is the start of more corn. So seeds are, are sort of, you know, <laughs> the ugly stepchildren. They just, but more than that, they're just our abandoned children. Um, Every morsel of food that we put in our mouths is dependent on a seed. Even, you know, if you're a farmer and you're growing beef or meat, any kind of meat, you realize that you have to have pasture, and all the pasture comes from seeds. So at some point, everything depended on seeds. What's been happening with them, Aaron, is a, a genetic erosion uh, we are, with industrial ag, uh, came more acres planted, larger acreage planted in fewer varieties. So whereas my grandfather and many of our grandfathers 
own small diversified farms across the country would have been growing uh, myriad crops, you know, truck truck crops, and saving uh, their own seeds year after year for the most part. Um, I mean, uh, 200 years ago, everybody was saving their own seeds. There weren't any hardware stores really that you could run down to and buy new zucchini seeds. So we come from this tradition not very long ago of all of us being responsible for our seed supply, and now we're at a place where almost none of us are responsible. Farmers themselves become have become the renters of seeds and not the caretakers of seeds. I, I'll quickly run down a few reasons. Industrial ag tops the list, and you and I can will probably talk more about this, but fewer of us in general are, are live in rural areas or grow anything. 80% of us now urban dwellers. And then beyond that, fewer and fewer of us farmers. In 1900, 41% and now less than 2%. But it was really industrial ag and the beginning of chemical fertilizers, which ushered in as well mechanization, tra- tractors, standardization, commercialization, you know, the shipping of of crops long distances that was really that's and the growing of more commodities and less you know truck farming that really was the advent of this huge genetic erosion so oh let me let me codify it if you don't mind uh-huh. 94% of seed varieties grown in 1900 were unavailable commercially in um, early 2000. Uh, the Rural Advancement Fund in 1983 did a study looking at what seed varieties were available in 1900 as compared to what were in, uh, available in 1983 in our national gene banks, in our seed laboratories. And they came up with a... Um, of 90, I think 97% was their figure. The United Nations says globally we've lost 75% of seed resources. Wow. And, I mean, that's like anything that goes extinct. Once it's gone, it, it's more or less gone forever. Is that correct? Yes, but in this country, in 75, began a movement called the Seed Savers Exchange in which a cadre of gardeners uh, became educated about what was happening to seeds. This movement started with a couple no longer married, Kent and Diane Whaley, who were taking care of Diane's grandfather, a man named Baptist John Ott, who had immigrated to this country. When he came, he brought a couple of varieties of plants, including uh, Grandpa Ott's Morning Glory, kind of the signature um, seed of the Seed Savers Exchange. Also, a German pink tomato. And when he died, they realized that when he was gone, nobody was left to take care of, to keep growing these crops. And we never know what genetic material is contained within a seed. We're looking right now, we're staring some pretty heavy-duty challenges in the face, including climate, extreme climate variability because of the, of, of the climate crisis. And we have no idea what genes are going to be necessary, what, what kind of 
of conditions, we're going to need to breed our our plant, our foodstuffs for. So it's it's just safest for all of us to be aware of what's happening. The Seed Savers movement uh, became more and more widespread through the 80s and 90s, and now it's a, you know, the Seed Savers Exchange has a wonderful headquarters in Decorah, Iowa, thousands of members, and these are people I call quiet revolutionaries who in their gardens across the country may be curating many crops of antique, vintage of heirloom plants, or maybe just one crop of a family cantaloupe that has been grown in a, in a family for generations, or a family okra. But, but all of them keeping alive at the margins this genetic base and, and really resisting, whether they know it or not, what um, Vandana Shiva calls monocultures of the mind. Um, in that corporations will corporations will in effect force us uh, toward greater and greater monocultures uh, in our in our food supply in our genetic base our seed supply but also in our thinking as well so i want to talk a little bit about the actual kind of you know, operationalizing uh, seed saving. Um, so, can you get? Can you kind of just walk us through it? If, if I, you know, have a cantaloupe or a tomato or a cucumber, you know, in my backyard garden, can I just, you know, scoop the seeds out and and put them on a paper towel and plant them the next year? I mean, how is it that one actually goes through the process of saving seeds, and and how does that maybe differ between crops? So the answer is yes, you can absolutely do that. <laughs> there are a lot of parameters and caveats. And I would recommend a book called Seed to Seed by Suzanne Ashworth. It's just a treasure trove of information. She, she moves foodstuff by foodstuff and explains the entire process of saving that crop seeds. The sexiest seed and the easiest one to save are beans. Uh, beans, you, you would plant your bed of beans. Let's just say you're planting uh, yellow pencil pod beans, which is an open pollinated variety, very popular with uh, farmers, market uh, gar- farmers. You know, um, I should, let me rephrase that, market farmers. Um, so you would plant the entire bed. What you would do would be leave some of the, the beans on the plant so that the, mes- the seeds mature. You know, you wouldn't necessarily be picking all the beans so that they could be snapped and steamed. Um, so, so when you're harvesting, so later in the season, you would then harvest those more mature beans. They'll be larger and drier. The pod will be tough. And then you dry them out of direct sunlight, um, around 90 degrees in a place, you know, with as as low of humidity as you can. A gentle solar dehydrator would work or, you know, out of direct sunlight in the back seat of of an abandoned vehicle or just in your home is fine. And then stash them away in a little envelope and you can put them in the deep freeze Seeds get more complicated uh, with biennials, with squashes. Uh, tomatoes are an- another very easy crop. In general, you would grow the mortgage lifter tomato, harvest the tomatoes you want to save, save seeds from, 
Uh, you do that by squeezing out the seeds, adding a little water in a jar, letting them ferment for a few days. Fermentation breaks down this uh, mucilaginous seed coating that will often harbor bacterial uh, spot or bacterial canker. So, so you get more disease resistance if you ferment the seeds. Then after a few days, you pour off this, the scum off the top viable seeds sink to the bottom, rinse them, put them out on a pie plate and dry them and do the same, store them, label them and store them. There are some parameters concerning uh, you're only only being able to grow one crop. So I should back up and say seeds are pollinated three ways. They're either self-pollinated, as in beans, meaning the the, the pollen is actually brushed off the anther as the flower opens, uh, and the, the pollen is brushed across the stigma, which is the female part. Insect pollination means showy flowers, often with fragrance that attract pollinators. And then wind pollen, like corn, is pollinated by the wind, taking the pollen out of the tassels and blowing it onto the silk. So for... Wind-pollinated crops, easily cross-pollinated. Insect-pollinated crops uh, cross-pollinate fairly readily. All of cross-pollination is not bad. This is is what hybridizing is. It is traditional plant breeding where something cross-pollinates in your garden, Erin, and you, you you grow out the seeds and you find, oh, my gosh, this yellow uh, cherry tomato has cross-pollinated with this um, red grape tomato, or, and I have these streaked-looking red grape tomatoes, or, you know, whatever the cross turns out, that's the way we develop new crops. So hybridizing is not bad. That is plant breeding. But if you want to maintain the purity of a species, uh, like you want to keep... This, this Hubbard squash, and you don't want it to cross with a banana squash and give you all kinds of weird kinds of squashes when you replant those seeds, then you would have to take measures to isolate that Hubbard plant or plant only one of this, of this species of squash uh, or learn to hand pollinate which is not that hard. Now, all this sounds incredibly complicated, and I don't want to scare you or anybody else away. (laughs) Van Ashworth's book is a great resource. Awesome. And we are going to have to uh, take a quick break, um, but when we come back, I'm sure we'll have plenty more seed talk, so hold tight. Shadow is only a matter of time before it catches you and everything she touches. 
All right. I am excited to share with you that was my cousin, Sarah Keen, and her band, The Four Lincolns. Check them out on Facebook. Uh, Their tune, Everything She Touches, Turns to Gold. And we are back on the line with Janice Ray talking about seeds. So, Janice, before the break, you very eloquently took us very quickly through uh, the process of saving seeds um, for, for a home gardener or maybe a farmer on a smaller scale. And I'm just curious how that process does or doesn't change when you're looking to kind of amp up production. For example, uh, you know, you run a seed catalog or would you call it a seed farm? Or, I mean, where do those seeds come from and how does that process look different or is it just bigger? This is a wonderful question, Erin, and it's a question I actually wish I'd addressed more in this book, but it, the but seeds and, and the life of seeds is so complicated, I had to draw some boundaries, but let me just tell you what I do know. Uh, there are two kinds of scientifically produced seeds. One is called hybrid, F1 hybrid, An F1 is a first filial cross. Now, just bear with me, and oh. One sentence will explain this. A hybrid seed is the cross of two unlike parents. In the first year, when you plant them, they exhibit this characteristic called hybrid vigor. So hybrid seeds were introduced to the market in the mid-20s, and by the 40s, many, many farmers were growing them. I could give you some statistics. Um, the problem with growing a hybrid seed is that you, when you try to save your own seed, you don't get back what you planted. You get back any number of ancestral strains. Now, the way to make that seed grow true and be open-pollinated, it's called, would be for you to continue out the work of the classical plant breeder and breed for another seven to ten generations until every time you planted that, that seed, you got back exactly the thing that you planted, not some crazy ancestor. Hybrid seeds and then the second genetically modified seeds, also produced in the laboratory, not in nature. They're artificially altered through their DNA to take on new characteristics, and these genes can come from entirely different kingdoms of life, viral, bacterial, animal, uh, plant. Wait, that's uh, the, the, you're talking about the GMOs, genetically modified or altered seeds right now, correct? That's exactly okay. right. So what I'm talking about are two different kinds of seeds that are scientifically produced. Now, the, the thing about these seeds is with hybrids and with GM, you cannot, they are patented by the, the, the developing companies usually multinationals, and you cannot save these seeds without risk of fine or imprisonment. The patents are owned by the companies. So that means these, so the way these companies grow these seeds out is usually by conscripting with other countries where, the, where labor is cheaper. Israel grows a lot of our seeds, um, so, so what they would do would be ship the recipe to the, the fields in Israel or wherever they're going to be grown. Worker, so, so a, a, a row of one of the ancestral, like, so if they're making a hybrid, let's just say a hybrid uh, zucchini. 
So one row would be one of the parent strains, and then next to it, another row, and workers would really literally come along hand-pollinating the, the seeds. Uh, those, that, those zucchini would be harvested, the, the seeds from the zucchini harvested, and those are the seeds that would be sold as hybrid seeds. So much of our, if you're just looking in a, in a big company catalog, and I won't name any names, you will find that most of the seeds are being grown out um, all around the globe. Now, small companies like High Mowing Seed Company in Vermont, a wonderful little company, or uh, Johnny's Selected Seeds in Maine, another wonderful company, these, these uh, companies have really visionary owners, and these people are actually developing new varieties of seeds on site, and they are working with farmers around this country to grow out. So if, if Johnny's needed, um, let me give you an example of a Malabar spinach, which is a spinach that we're trialing here and experimenting with. It's, a, it's not a, a true spinach. It's a tropical heat-adapted vine that has very large spinach-tasting but more mucilaginous leaves but, a, you know, a lovely substitute for the South for spinach. So let's say, this is not happening, but let's say that high mowings needed um, Malabar spinach seeds. They would then, they would, they would contract with me to grow them, and I would save them like I would save any seeds in my garden and uh, dry them, get them cleaned, and ship them back to high mowings so that they would then use those seeds to sell. So there are plenty of farmers, small farmers in this country who are growing small plots for seeds that are being sold through small, regional, local seed companies. So, but in general, seeds are coming from all around the world. And so what, I mean, as a consumer, I mean, you named some nice resources that we can look to, to and feel good about purchasing seeds from. I'm curious about you know, pricing and, and how that varies between these two different models and, and what what should we expect as like a fair price for a, you know, sustainably um, produced seed? Do you mean for a packet of seed? That yeah, a for a packet of use? seeds that I might grow, you know, if I wanted to put together, you know, a garden in my backyard or if I want to be you know, thinking carefully about, you know, growing choices, uh, I mean, what are the economics of that? Um, you know, if I'm looking at a, a more global model or a more local model, I mean, what is the cost difference we're talking about here? I mean, maybe just in percentages, um, if you know. Yeah, and I don't know, but I will say this, that I am a, I am a huge supporter of local economics. I A lot of our environmental travesties are happening because of the global economy and the global marketplace. So any way that we can return our money to local investing and just circulating locally, the better off all of us are going to be. So definitely I try to shop for seeds at, well, really with individuals, first of all, you know, buying from, ordering them from other members of the Seed Savers Exchange or uh, getting them through our, our Georgia Market Bulletin, which is a little... Uh, classified that comes out from our Department of Agriculture. Beyond that, I shop with um, 
small, regional, independent seed companies. Um, in the last 40 years, uh, just dozens and dozens of our seed companies, more than a 1,000 independent seed companies have been bought by multinationals in, in this horizontal, um, no, lateral uh, expansion of the multinationals. So anytime we can, the, the closer to home we can buy seeds, the more adapted to our microclimates they're going to be and the more we're going to support local economics. That makes sense. I mean, and is kind of the reverberating theme when, when we look at any purchasing choices is, is think think close to home. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you paint this really interesting picture of uh, seeds being these kind of little genetic packets and, you, you know, much like when two parents come together, two, you know, human parents come together and have a kid and the kid shows up with, you know, red hair that hasn't been seen since three, four generations back and you and you have um you know all all these kind of opportunities for for exciting and unexpected things to happen when you plant an actual seed i can see where as a home gardener that would be kind of exciting and interesting um but if you're looking to kind of produce something on a more consistent basis I'm, i'm curious like when you look at planting i know for example uh Apple seeds, you would never just plant an apple seed and expect the same apple tree to grow, so they do a lot of grafting or or techniques like that. I mean, are there places where it's more appropriate to grow from seed and other places where it's more appropriate to grow from a, a cutting? Is that just a, a control thing? or? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, it's so complicated <laughs> and so interesting. It, you bring up this great point with apple trees. At the turn of the century, there were over 7,000 varieties of apple trees being grown in this country, and, and the statistics say that 86% of them are lost. Um, now, you're right. You walk into a store now, and most of our apples are, are Granny Smith, Red Delicious, Yellow Delicious. Um, I'm no geneticist. I'm a storyteller. But I do see that, that seeds are... They are these little genetic bundles that are pretty mysterious and, and secret, and we don't really know what's going to happen in there. Um, there in, in, you know, we, there is the possibility of genetic mutation, but in general, we adapt uh, crops to our uh, microclimates and our places through, tr- you know, traditional plant breeding, just like this squash crosses with this squash and we see what happens and how it tastes, but also through something called selection pressure, which is, let's just say that you planted 100 plants of Jimmy Nardello uh, sweet peppers in your garden, Erin, and I planted 100 here. Over time, if if I were selecting the the plants that did the best in 100-degree heat in August, for example. After 10 years, your plants are going to perform very differently than my plants because you're selecting for something else in a, in a different climate. And, and that is that, that is, the reason for this is the gene is present for whatever we select for. But, the, the, you know, there's, a, there's this wide panoply of possibilities in this tiny seed, but over time, I suppress certain genes, and you suppress certain genes, and so after a number of years, if, if we did DNA testing, 
genetically our plants would be different. Now, I I think I I'm gonna I, I we have oh, I'm just frustrated because we're out of time and there's so many more questions I have for you. So I think that we are, uh, what I'd love to do is, um, you know, schedule you to come back on, on another show. And, and in the meantime, what I'd love for my listeners to do is to check out your great book, the seed underground, a growing revolution to save food. And it's available through a multitude of outlets, but you also have more information through your publisher, correct? A www.chelseagreen, C-H-E-L-S-E-A-G-R-E-E-N.com. And there's a web, there's a page for the Seed Underground there. But also, Chelsea Green's a fabulous publisher based in White River Junction that does all kinds of sustainability and green living and good food movement books. So they're definitely worth checking out. Awesome. Janice, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have to have you back on so we can get a chance to hear some readings from your book and talk a little bit more about all the tons of great content there. We're going to take a quick uh, break and when we come back, we're going to launch into a new section of the Farm Report, the five-minute market update. So stay tuned for that. And Janice, we'll be in touch about having you back on soon, okay? Thank you so much, Erin. Thank you. I'm Nicole Taylor, host of Hot Grease. Food is about community, gathering together, enjoying great food and great conversation. That's how I grew up, and that's what I do on my show, Hot Grease. I bring in the community, and we talk food, people, gardening, kids, the South, and more. Join our community by going to the donate button on our website and become a member of the Heritage Radio Network. All right, we are back. We are on the line with Liz Carollo, the publicity coordinator for New York City's Green Market System, and we are about to start our debut session of the five-minute market update. So, Liz, what is the word at the farmers' markets in New York City? Hi, Erin. So great to be on. Um, The markets are up and running. We are in the heat of summer. It's wonderful out there. It's been a great season so far since... um, we had a pretty warm spring. A lot of the produce came in. Everything's been coming in about three weeks early, so the markets are absolutely just jam-packed with okra peppers, eggplant, tomatoes, summer squash, corn, beans. Um, today is actually the midway point between summer solstice and fall equinox, so it's the day that a lot of our growers start planting their fall crops. Um, and winter grains, so the winter grains don't get harvested until next spring, but they have to overwinter, so all of that stuff is starting to go into the ground. Um, so pretty soon, in the next month or so, you'll see, see some of those fall crops start showing up at the market. Um, but there's no shortage of really amazing summer produce out there, some nectarines and all kinds of fruit, uh, the stone fruit, so many plums, Saturn peaches, melons are coming in really strong right now. So even this week I saw the first of the apples and the pears coming in, which is a little scary because I don't think anyone is ready to let go of summer just yet, but um, but it's coming in the next month. So, um, so yeah, the markets are looking good. And um, a couple of new items, so we now have ground duck at the market. Um, and some, you know, you just have to check out markets individually and see what kind of new things are coming in, but this is the time of year to really get out there and see it. Um, and since it's the midway point between summer solstice and fall equinox, it's like, uh, it's a a reminder to everyone that if you haven't hit the market yet this season to get out and stock up. (laughs) Then you are behind. (laughs) Yeah. I, I was just thinking this morning myself that 
it's also kind of prime prime time for buying if you want to do any sort of like pickling or preserving for the summer. Well, it's great that you mentioned that because we received a grant from Ball Mason Jars this year. So we're doing canning demonstrations at a ton of our markets with our resident canner, uh, Robin Puskas. So on our website is a list of what markets, but she goes, she's going to 18 markets over the course of the season, um, and she's teaching canning workshops for free, and she's showing how to make jam and also how to process it. And then, you know, people have all kinds of questions about uh, pH balance and how much sugar to use and if you even have to use sugar or pectin or honey or ciders or, what you know, what can you sweeten it with. And so she's out there at the markets teaching people how to can and put away um, put away all that food so you can enjoy it through the winter. Awesome. And I know that you guys run more markets in the summer and prime season than in the winter. So can you just give us a sense of the scope? How many markets and are they in all boroughs? And, and then maybe just where people can, can find out what's closest to them. Sure. Great. Yeah, we have all 54 of our markets are open. We're in all five boroughs. Um, 51 of our markets accept EBT or food stamps, so we're, we're almost at full capacity with that, which is really exciting because EBT customers can shop at the markets right now um, and get two extra dollars to spend on fruits and vegetables for every $5 spent through Health Bucks, a program funded by the Department of Health, so um, that's, that's extra exciting for us. Um, but yeah, so all 54 of our markets are open. We opened four new ones this year in Forest Hills in Queens, Windsor Terrace, um, in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst in Brooklyn, and then Crotona in the South Bronx. Um, so that's really um, that's exciting for us to have four brand new markets. And then uh, Rock Center is a market that opens up only for six weeks in the height of the season. So there's three more weeks, and I was just up there this morning, and it is like such a beautiful location. It's right at the base of 30 Rock, so all the flags are up in that beautiful fountain, and it's just especially if you don't go to Midtown. Very often, it's really nice to get up there and kind of sit and have a cup of coffee. In the, um, and we have a staff potluck today, and I got everything I needed to create a really good cucumber corn ricotta salada salad, uh, all from that market. So, yeah, and because delicious. it's kind of like a little, you, we just get it for six weeks. It's really nice to just go visit. All right. Well, there you have it. The five minute market update. If you have questions for Liz or want to hear something more about what's happening in the markets, you can always uh, email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. I want to say big thanks to Janice Ray, my guest today, and Joe for being such an awesome producer and engineering today's show. You can always find archived episodes of the Farm Report on heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes as a podcast. Remember, we're live every Thursday at one. And like I said before, if you have questions, shoot us an email. So see you next week, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our